I love these. Oh, you know, you can never do X because this gives me a great list of, okay, what should we do next? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if you have any of these, please send it to us. JetBrain Space, a unified platform for the entire software development pipeline and team collaboration. Combine Git hosting, code reviews, CICD, package, planning tools, issues, documents, chats, and blogs all in one place. Bring your software teams together to communicate and deliver high-quality code faster. Get started for free at jetbrains.com space. Hello, good morning, and welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place where we chat about all things software, programming, engineering, and technology. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, and I'm joined this morning by Cassidy Williams. Hi, Cassidy. Hey, how are you? Great. So Cassidy uh, has helped us to write the newsletter since we launched, and she was an early guest on the podcast, now works at Netlify, but she's also a big Go player. So we thought it would be great to have her on the episode today because we have a guest from DeepMind who has worked on some very cool algorithms that have mastered games like chess and Go, and most recently, Atari. So video games is the important one, obviously. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Julian. Julian, introduce yourself. Say your last name because I I would butcher the pronunciation and tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, Ben. Hi, Cassidy. Thanks for having me. I guess my last name, uh, it's pronounced Schrittwiese. I'm from Austria, from Austria, so you can tell it's German. I've been at DeepMind for several years now, starting with, as you mentioned, I've been working on AlphaGo, the first program that managed to defeat professional human Go players many years before many people expected this. And ever since then, I've been working on pushing this line of algorithm to be more general and to be applicable to more and more real-world problems. And the most recent manifestation of this was MuZero, as you already hinted at. Awesome. And so tell us just a little bit more background. How did you get introduced to computer science? You know, what's your sort of background in self-taught or education? And then how did you make your way to this particular area of work in a place like DeepMind? Yeah, I've always, I think since I was a kid, been pretty interested in computers. I think initially, you know, I started like many people, I was very interested in games and especially making my own games. So I think this is really how I got hooked. First thing it was basic, visual basic. Mm. And then I eventually I got my hands on some C++ book. But along the way, I think I was always more interested in building the engine, building the backend. So through all of this time, I never actually managed to build any game at all. <laughs> but I, I did I did learn a lot about, you know, computers and programming. And I remember, you know, the first time wrangling with pointers and C and just exploding my head. Oh, man. Good times. <laughs> and so I guess over time, I became pretty sure that I wanted to work in computing, in software engineering. And so this is why also I went to university to study computer science. But I think at this time, I didn't... I didn't know a lot about AI. I didn't have a particular interest in AI or machine learning. So I was actually just, well, interested in software engineering in general, maybe especially in computer security. I went to a lot of security conferences, like Chaos Communication Congress in Germany or the conferences in the US, like DEF CON. But the way I got into, into AI is more of an accident. After university, I joined Google as a software engineer. Mm-hmm. And about one year into my job, this was about the time that DeepMind was acquired by Google, Demis came to our office to give a talk about, you know, what was DeepMind about, what were they doing? 
And it was actually my day off. I was on holiday. But for some reason, I was checking my email and I saw this email from this Demis person and he was talking about, you know, learning to play Atari and all these cool algorithms. And I was just like, ah, I cannot miss this talk, right? (laughs) So I just made it in time just for this talk to the office. And this is when I really decided, you know, I have to work on this. I have to, you know, move to the team. And, you know, I'm I'm very glad I did this. I, I think it's been a really exciting time. That is cool. so awesome. I, I geeked out when AlphaGo came out, like watching the documentary, watching the games live and everything. Uh, I personally play Go. I try to play it every day. And I remember my father-in-law, he's been playing Go for like 20 years. And when when the announcement came that AlphaGo was going to be playing against Lisa Dahl and, and all of these great people, he stayed up all night watching the games and it blew his mind that a bot could do this. It was really fun to experience that with him, but just in, in general. And, and the, the work that you've done is so interesting and just so cool, both seeing it applied to games and, and games that are really interesting and, and loved by so many people, but also just the mass behind it, the AI behind it is, is so interesting. That's really awesome to hear that he enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I think it was a really magical moment you know, to see this machine, this algorithm play moves and play things that nobody would have expected beforehand. I think, yeah, yeah it was really very special for us. It was so entertaining because <laughs> people were just like, huh, okay, he, the, 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 the computer went there. So let's see how, how this could play out. And, and, and they would just like <laughs> yeah. have a whiteboard, like mapping it out and everything. And, and it was so fun to see many people kind of be startled by it, but also like, oh, this is smart. And, and yeah, it's, it's the coolest thing. I'm geeking out here thinking about it again. Yeah, I remember that I was working at The Verge at the time and we were covering it. And right, sort of the confusion of the announcers or the whole Go community be like, this doesn't seem like a good strategy and like unclear what the strategy is at this point. Like we're way off the map here. <laughs> and then, you know, come around to uh, end up winning those games. So Julian, I guess just quickly for people who work in the world of software engineering and at big companies, wh- what's it like to make that switch? Do you have to put in a request to change teams? Do you have to learn like a new set of basics or they were busy recruiting for DeepMind and so they were willing to like take people on from any part of the company? Like what's it like to make that transition? So I guess it depends on every company, but I think inside mm-hmm. Google, inside Alphabet, I think there is relatively a lot of flexibility to transfer between teams. And so often, you know, when teams are looking for people, they will put out an internal announcement or a post. And, you know, what are they looking for? And so, you know, initially, since I didn't really have much of a background in AI, I just transferred as a software engineer role and did a lot of engineering work. But over time, I just, you know, put, read all the papers watched all the courses and read all the books I could find. And so I think deep learning, machine learning, is this exciting field that is still incredibly young. Mm -hmm. So you can catch up sort of to the state of the art relatively quickly and really make impactful contributions if you put in the effort. I think this is how I transferred, I sort of changed over time from to be more and more machine learning heavy and splitting my efforts. Do you think of yourself now or when you, you know, like when you're working in a different sort from a different perspective, which is to say like a paper is published in nature. So you're, you're sort of a scientist now, you know, as opposed to like a software engineer, do you still think of yourself as a software engineer? I think it's different every day or every hour of the day. You know, (laughs) one day I might just be, you know, reverse engineering Klang and getting, you know, trying to get something to compile. The other day I might be spending my whole day in JAX or some machine learning framework staring at losses or trying to come up with a new architecture. Mm -hmm. So I think 
depending on which project you're working on, there is always this Pareto frontier of a different trade-off of machine learning and engineering gives you the maximum speed forward. And depending on this, you know, I think I try to choose what am I going to do today? Will I try to make our models better? Will I try to make our code faster? Will I, you know, maybe refactor things and just delete code? <laughs> I think it's good to have that balance, honestly. It keeps you sharp on both ends, but then I, I also think it gives you a more holistic view of what you're trying to accomplish as well. Yeah, I, I think it's fun. And I think it also, it allows you to make progress without having to maybe wait for somebody else or having to excite somebody else about your idea. I think often when you're working in research, and, you know, initially you think you have a great idea. Everybody else is like, well, that sounds great, man. But <laughs> they're not necessarily very enthusiastic about it. And so if you need somebody else to do some foundational work for you or to, you know, prepare it for you, then it can be very tough to mm. prove it out and to try it. Whereas if you have flexibility and, you know, maybe you can hack it together yourself or maybe, you know, you know the necessary basics, this can give you a good advantage. So I think, you know, any of our listeners, if you are a student, if you're interested in this, I think this can be a very helpful part for you. Yeah. Whenever I need something from engineering and they can't do it for me, I just learn it all and do it myself. It's That's how you get rid of the blockers. I'm just <laughs> sure, Ben. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, it depends on the scope of what you need, but sometimes you may you might find that, oh, this is actually relatively small. Let's dive a little into, yeah, what's happened since AlphaGo and sort of the path to, to MuZero. Reading up the, on the blog post, one of the big differences is how much sort of human data, domain knowledge, knowledge of the rules goes in ahead of time. Can you walk us through sort of like the steps that have taken us from that original AlphaGo through AlphaGo Zero, Alpha Zero to, to, to where we are now with MuZero? Yes, totally. We actually have a little graphic as well uh, for this in the DeepMind blog post if you want to check it out later. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, basically, I guess if you start with AlphaGo, this was specialized to play the game of Go. It started, it was trained initially from human Go games, but it already had this core component of the Monte Carlo tree search that was using the predictions of the neural networks and combining them to make better estimates. And so the next step that we took, that was AlphaGo Zero, and there is a zero in the name to indicate that we removed the need for the human data so we could oh. you know, start training from zero, from nothing, or from scratch. And then after this, the next step was alpha zero. So there we dropped the Go and extended it to Chess and Shogi to sort of demonstrate that this tree search algorithm is actually pretty general. And it doesn't just work in Go, but it also works in other games. And we chose Chess in particular because, you know, this has a very long and rich history in, you know, game playing, computer science. And in chess, traditionally, alpha-beta search has been very successful. And so there was a lot of skepticism about, you know, oh, this Monte Carlo 3 search is great for Go, but, you know, wouldn't really work in chess or maybe not so good. So we really wanted to show, no, actually, you know, you can use this for pretty much anything. And so this is what we are with Alpha Zero. But all of these previous algorithms, AlphaGo, AlphaGo Zero, Alpha Zero, they all require you to know what are the rules of the game, what, what's going to happen when you play a move. Right. Because this is what you do inside the tree search. You roll forward the, the board game, the state, and you can tell the network, okay, you play this action, now this is the new state of the board, tell me what will happen. But of course, you know, for most real-world applications, this doesn't work. If you have a robot, if you have a car, 
that is supposed to drive and you want to think about possible future action sequences, it's really hard or some, it may be even impossible to have an accurate simulator that will tell you what would happen if you now you know, turn left or if you move the arm this way. And this was really the motivation behind Mu0. We want to keep this powerful tree search, but we want to remove the need for these rules or you know, we want to remove the need for this domain knowledge so that we can just apply it to any kind of RL problem. That was the motivation behind learning the model in Mu0 to use this inside the tree search. So if it's tree search and you don't have rules, this is where my computer science brain is a little bit confused. If you don't have the rules for which it can be applied, how does it know what to pick and, and, and how to learn things? Is it just try something? This appears to be a failure. Try something else. Or how does it know which branch of that tree to go and, and, and how does it know what to do? In, in my non-computer science brain, I sort of had the same question, which was like, you know, there's reinforcement of some kind, but how does it know that the objective is not to lose the game as quickly as possible, as opposed to like figure out the rules and win the game? So the program Mu0 is still told the reward at, you know, every step or at the end of the game. Okay. So for example, if you, if you play Go, after the game finishes, you're told, did you lose or did you win? Mm-hmm. Or if you play Atari, then maybe, you know, you're told the score, how many points are you getting? Gotcha. But you're not exactly... This is what it uses to learn its value function and to and the value function is then what it uses to estimate how well it is doing inside of the search tree. And so is it rewarded along the way or just kind of at the end once once it's gone through these decisions? Uh, so this can depend on the environment. In some okay. environments, like in the board game, you only know at the end of the game whether you won or lost. In other games, for example, in Atari, you might get a reward at every step or maybe, you know, you only get a reward if you discover some certain object. Mm-hmm. So this this can be flexible. That's so mm. interesting. <laughs> and so yeah, I guess like in a in a game like chess or go, it's it's kind of binary. Did you win or did you lose? In Atari, you're you're offering multiple rewards for things like extra points or the amount of time it took. So in exactly in Atari, the reward is the actual score of the Atari game. So you know mm. when you play like maybe pinball, you might get some high score. This score is exactly the reward that Mu0 would get for try to optimize. And so I guess the idea here is that you're you're sort of generalizing to unknown models. That was one of the sort of like subheads in the blog post. When AlphaGo came along, I do remember people, you know, talking a lot about what does this mean for artificial intelligence writ large, you know, are these systems going to be better at us soon at everything? And the, you know, sort of the sort of like most rational response would be like, it's great. It's amazing. It can be people that go, but it can't play chess. So, you know, it can't read poetry. You know, it can do one, it has, it's very domain specific. So as we move into this area, that's a little bit more generalizable, does that give you some sort of view on how we head towards more of that artificial general intelligence? Or is this still very much sort of defined by the scope of gaming? Yeah, I, I love these. Oh, you know, you can never do X because this gives me a great list of, okay, what should we do next? (laughs) So, you know, if you have any of these, please send it to us. I really love this. Yeah, it certainly is not restricted to gaming. I think the whole motivation of it was that, okay, playing games are great, but really what we want to do is solve practical real-world problems Mm -hmm. because, you know, this is ultimately what's going to make our lives better. And so I think specifically the way we approach this is with the, <clears throat> the framing of a reinforcement learning problem, which means there is some environment that you interact with and you may get some rewards at every step and you try to optimize, you try to maximize the sum of these rewards. And then 
if you can phrase your problem that the interest rate in as a reinforcement learning problem, then you can apply these algorithms to solve it. And so, of course, famously, you can phrase a lot of games as a reinforcement learning problem, but you can do the same you know, with other practical problems that you might care about, right? If you have a car that drives, maybe you, know, you want to go there quickly, but also safely. So you might get some reward for driving quickly, but also very large negative reward if you know, an accident happens or something like this. Yeah, I read a really interesting quote once that it helped me kind of frame my mind because there was definitely a point where I was watching AlphaGo and watching things like this. And I was like, man, our human brains, we, we need to be able to be as good as these machines. Someone needs to be able to defeat them. And, and you know, <laughs> I, I think quite a few people felt that way. But because of how machines learn and how they, they really focus in on these things because of how the algorithms are written and stuff. The quote that I read, I thought summed it up really well. You don't see like a crane that can lift a giant thing on top of a building and be just like, humans should be able to do that ourselves. <laughs> it's, it's a machine that was designed to be able to do that really, really well. And and I think it's kind of the same thing with with these reinforcement algorithms and with these AIs that learn really, really well this thing they just learn it really well and they can understand it really well. And they can do that one thing better than the human brain sometimes. Yeah. This is like kind of that classic, uh, John Henry, you know, sort of folktale where it's like the guy competing with the steam engine, you know, that's not, uh, the way for us to win this battle in the end. <laughs> not that it's a battle. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's the thing, right? Like we don't, I think it's the opposite, right? We do want the algorithm to do these tasks better than us because mm -hmm. ultimately they are our tools, right? Right. We exactly. use these algorithms to do things for us. So the more things they can do, the more things they can do better than us, well, the better for us, right? Right. I think, mm -hmm. you know, this, if you look at the history of civilization, this is how we improve our lives, right? Mm -hmm. By improving the productivity of humans through, you know, tools and in, in increasing these sophisticated machines. And, you know, this is how we will be able to continue doing this in the future, I think. Yeah. I think it's just all of the movies who are just like, the AI has come to life and will defeat <laughs> us all. If, we, if you get out of that mindset and think of it like that, like it's a, it's a tool we're going to be able to use to be better than we ever were at something. Exactly. That, that's what's exciting about it. And that's what that's the whole meat of it. That that means that we got to move forward with it. Yeah. I wonder why we're so hung up on that narrative. That's like, you know, I, it's hard to find the, the counter narrative. There aren't a lot of movies about like benevolent AI systems. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, for example, with Go, you can see a lot of after the Go matches, after Lee Sedol, a lot or maybe almost all of the Go professionals, they actually started studying using AIs yeah. to, you know, analyze their moves or to be inspired. And so actually it helped them become much better Go players. And mm. it really has increased the interest a lot. Yeah, I think it's that we just want to keep our status as the apex predator. We're fearful. We're fearful. <laughs> Biological things. So, Julian, I guess you were mentioning, yeah, you know, that this could be applied to other fields. And I remember reading in the blog um, that Alpha Zero had been applied to stuff like chemistry. You know, I, I've read a lot about interesting things with drug discovery in this use of deep learning. One of the things I read that really made me happy was they had looked at all of these old, you know, drugs and medicines that have been developed, like hundreds of thousands, millions of patents and been like, is any of this good for anything? And the machine was like, oh yeah, you should try drug X for disease Y. And the doctors, similar to Go, were just like, everything I've been taught in school, I would, that, that is just, this is wrong. There's nothing about my training or modern science that would tell me try this, but then we did and it worked. And so like, right, what a, what a great benefit for everyone. You know, things that have already been invented and are sitting on the shelf 
can now be applied, you know, to potentially to medicine. But talk a little bit about some of the range of yeah complex problems that the current iterations of the alpha and, and mu zero are, you know, you're experimenting with, and then maybe a little bit about you know what what's down the the road five or ten years, like what gets you excited, you know, to think about in terms of potential. Yeah, I guess like the the things that we're looking at at the moment is extending the algorithm to sort of very complex action spaces. Like, you know, you mentioned selecting from hundreds of thousands of possibilities. So I think that's one of the things that we've been looking at recently in a lot of real-world problems. You know, there, there are sort of many possibilities or degrees of freedom in which you can act. You know, if you think of a robot arm, there are all these, you know, you can move the fingers and the arm, the wrist. There are all these degrees of freedom that can make it very complex for an algorithm. So this is one of the things that we have been looking at recently. And I think very well aligned with this. Also, you know, you mentioned there's all these existing medicines, all this existing data. I think a critical part for an algorithm is that it can learn offline from such data. Mm. And, you know, even though it maybe you don't need to interact with any environment, you can just have this stored data and, you know, think about this and analyze it and improve as you think offline on it. So this is another aspect that we've been looking at a lot recently. And so, well, hopefully we can actually share some more details with this soon. Uh, so stay tuned. <laughs> oh, great. You have a news peg for our podcast. Okay. Exactly. As a former journalist, now I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's pretty cool. Like, I think this will really make it very much easy to use for many people to apply to their problems. I think long-term, I think there is a lot of potential for solving sort of abstract reasoning or optimization problems. Like if you take a look at what is tree search or what does it do, in some sense, what you're optimizing is you have a sequence you have a sequence of decisions. At each time step, you maybe have a bunch of options and you're trying to find what is the best overall sequence of actions. And you know, this works well in games, but I think there are also a lot of maybe mathematical, maybe well, sort of real-world organizational or optimization problems where currently, you know, it's sort of the famous case of the NP complete problem, right? It's incredibly hard to find a solution, but once you do have a solution, then it can be very easy to verify. I think this kind of problem tends to work very well with well, our algorithms and mu0, alpha0 in specific, because this is exactly what happens in, the, in this training loop, right? The act of running the tree search and selecting actions to it, this is, you know, you're trying to find, really trying to find the solution to your hard problem. And then at the end, the reward, well, this is you look at the problem and see, did I get it right or did I not get it right? So any problem that has this shape, I think you can really try to attack it with alpha zero or mu zero, right? And mm-hmm. really try to solve it. I think this is, you You reference the chemistry paper that was published by some other researchers. I think that's a very interesting application of it. You mentioned that, you know, you came from just doing sort of the software engineering at Google and then moved over to DeepMind and you were able to read a lot on your own. If somebody wanted to get started with this, what resources would you recommend? What like books or videos helped you? What um, you know languages or frameworks were useful as you moved more into this field? So I think things have been changing really rapidly. So what I probably used when I started is not that useful anymore. Mm. But I think a great source, almost all machine learning papers, you can find a lot of them on archive. And so you can just you know find them, read them for free. And usually if you read the previous work section, you might find other papers in reference that you might be useful for you. The more they are cited, probably, you know, if you see them every time, probably you should read them. Everybody's using them. In terms of actual frameworks, 
a lot of work is using Python with either Jax or PyTorch nowadays. Mm-hmm. I think these are two very easy to use frameworks. Personally, I think like we've been using Jax for all our work recently with MuZero, and it's it's actually been really fun to use. So I definitely recommend to give this a try. I'm surprised you don't bring um, up TensorFlow too. Is that one not as active or, or used in your area? So we used to use TensorFlow as well previously, but then we migrated from TensorFlow to Jax gotcha. for our use okay. case. And so I guess Jax, maybe you don't, you might not know Jax, but you might know NumPy. And so mm. Jax basically has the same API as NumPy, but then it compiles the whole network for efficient execution on an accelerator, like a TPU or GPU. Cool. And so this yeah. just makes it very easy to experiment with things for us. I'm glad you brought that up because I have to mispronounce some coding term on every episode and numpy <laughs> is one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, I have, I mean, you know, in terms of pronunciation, I'm terrible, right? So who knows what it's really pronounced. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Julian, at the end of every episode, I shout out a Lifeboat badge winner. That's somebody who came on to Stack Overflow answered a question that had a score of negative three or less, and now their answer has a score of positive 20 or more. So awarded 20 hours ago to Skunlife, call a JavaScript function across browser tabs. Thanks, Skunlife. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper, and you can always email us uh, podcast at stackoverflow.com. We love to hear your questions and suggestions. And uh, yeah, if you like the show, please, you know, head on over to whatever podcast platform you're using and uh, give us a like and um, maybe leave a review. I don't know. Why not? You could try it. (laughs) Cassidy, why don't you let people know who you are, what you do, where they can find you if you want to be found? Sure. My name is Cassidy Williams and I'm a principal developer experience engineer at Netlify. You can find me on the internet at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O, or you can Google Cassidy Williams, but there's a Scooby-Doo character named Cassidy Williams. I am not the Scooby-Doo character and that's how you can find me. (laughs) And Julian, you want to let people know who you are just to remind them as, as they leave the episode and if you want to be found on the internet where they should look you up. I'm Julian Schritwiese, a senior staff suite at DeepMind. I sometimes blog at uh, furidamo.org. It's been fun to be on the show. See you next time. Awesome.